Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The conclusions of this report are absolutely clear. There is no doubt. There is nothing equivocal. There are no ambiguities. What happened on Bloody Sunday was both unjustified and unjustifiable. Welcome back to Warfare. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this week we're marking the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. It was in January 1972 that a peaceful civil rights march in Northern Ireland ended in bloodshed. Troops from Britain's 1st Battalion Parachute Regiment opened fire on unarmed marchers. They left 13 dead and 18 wounded. Another died later, and seven of those killed were teenage boys. And so it was that day that became known as Bloody Sunday. To take us through this history, we have Julianne Campbell, a former chair of the Bloody Sunday Trust, who took on the role of family press officer ahead of the report of the Bloody Sunday Inquiry in 2010. Julianne is the author of a new book, On Bloody Sunday, a new history of the day and its aftermath in the words of those who were there. And therefore, Julianne is the ideal person to reveal a long contested history of peace, of protest and of violence. Hi Julianne, welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? How has the start to your new year been? Quiet and slow. Thank you for having me on today. It is great to have you here because you might have had a quiet and slow start to the year, but I imagine it's going to pick up in pace pretty quickly, especially as we mark the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, which occurred on January 30th, 1972. Now, as soon as we mention Bloody Sunday, many of those listening will immediately see the image in their mind's eye of Catholic priest Edward Daly waving a blood-stained white handkerchief while trying to get your uncle, Jackie Duddy, to safety as he lay fatally wounded. But perhaps you can start by taking us back step by step through the events that led to Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday was an anti-internment march, which was one of the civil rights demands, was an end to internment, which was imprisonment without trial. A lot of young men here, mostly of a Catholic nationalist persuasion, were um, arrested and put in jail for no reason. They had no trial, nothing. And it scores of people, hundreds. And so Bloody Sunday March was an anti-internment march. And it was a really 
a family-oriented day. You know, I don't think anyone actually expected any trouble because there was a lot of families on the march. And it's estimated between 10,000 to 20,000 people on it. So a, a lot of dairy. And instead of having the normal police at the time, the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, instead of having them police it, for some reason, they decided to send on the British Paratroop Regiment which is the really highly trained elite of the British Army, and they're well known for their heavy-handed tactics. So I think once the word that the paras were being sent on to Derry to police a peaceful civil rights march worried people a lot on the ground, but it doesn't take away from the the jovial atmosphere of the day and, and people getting together for a good cause. The original destination of the march was the city's guild hall. And as the marchers tried to reach their destination in the city centre, the city centre was blocked off on several routes by the army. And there was a real, real heavy army presence all around the city. And within a few minutes, the British Army had opened fire on the marchers in Derry. And there was 13 people shot dead on the day and a further 18 injured. And one man died later in June of his injuries. So he was he became the 14th victim of Bloody Sunday. Straight away, the British Army said that it was an IRA gun battle. But the people in Derry on the ground knew that it wasn't. And they knew that they didn't fire the first shots. And so... The lie around Bloody Sunday, the, the cover-up started almost immediately. And the minutes afterwards, whenever it was suggested that it was an IRA gun battle, and that is the slur that we've been trying to overcome for five decades now. And we have achieved a modicum of truth in regards to Bloody Sunday. And there was a, a letter, an inquiry we'll probably talk about in a while, who said that the British Army fired first, which was a really, really important point, you know, that they came in shooting. And that most of the people were shot in the back or shot while helping someone else. The Savile Report makes for really harrowing reading of the intricacies of the day and how bad it was on the ground. My uncle was 17 years old and he was one of the many marchers there. He wasn't big into politics. Our house isn't very political, but he was very into civil rights and equality. And he went because all his friends were going and because it would have been a great day out. And he was running alongside Bishop Daly at the very beginning of the of the unrest after the march. He was running beside Bishop Daly and Bishop Daly always said he thought that he saw Jackie kind of almost like a giggle because he saw a priest running from the army. And just at that, with the, the giggle, he just fell forward and collapsed and Bishop Daly ran on. And then when they looked back, the Jackie was still lying on the ground and they realised that he was shot. So my uncle Jackie was the first person shot dead on the day. There was two people shot before that uh, in a different part of the, of the bog side, but he was the first fatality of the day. And as you say, that footage of them being carried, that's the day in moments. And my family have never been able to escape that footage, the BBC footage. And every time it's aired on the news or there's a documentary, they always show Jackie's last moments. So we've sort of been surrounded by it our whole lives, but sheltered from it also because we weren't allowed to go to marches. We weren't allowed to go to crowded events just in case, you know, of what might happen. So it has influenced us. In a way, but it's a legacy. I'm I'm really proud to have done something to try and help that legacy and try and change the narrative around Bloody Sunday. So many people have worked alongside us doing that, and I think we have succeeded. And just to to highlight the the peaceable movement that this was part of, is it fair to say that this civil rights march is inspired and a continuation of the civil rights movement that's going on in the United States? And of course, it's only four years before that that the Reverend Martin Luther King has been shot dead himself in violence that stems from these peaceful civil rights movements. Most definitely, it is inspired by the American civil rights movement. And I think most people here would acknowledge that. 
Uh, I think it was the fact that other people were standing up for themselves and the Catholic nationalist population of Northern Ireland thought, hold on a minute. If other people are standing up for themselves and demanding change, why can't we? They were heavily inspired by Martin Luther King and by the American Civil Rights Movement. We even plagiarized their songs and everything. So their We Shall Overcome anthem became Northern Ireland's We Shall Overcome anthem too. We were heavily influenced and inspired by what they were doing at the time. And actually, a lot of people of my parents' age remember that it was when they started getting TVs in Derry. It was a real luxury to have a TV. But when people started getting TVs in the 60s, they started realizing, oh, my God, look what's happening in America. And to put a, an image to those stories of the black civil rights movement, that really, really spurred things on. And the people that had already mobilized here were inspired to take it a bit further. And that's when the street protests and demonstrations really took off here. And they did achieve change. They did achieve limited reforms. We did get one man, one vote. We got more jobs equality and religious equality. And there was no more discrimination when it came to jobs. And, you know, if you went for a job interview and they asked you what your school was, they would know you were a Catholic straight away and they would say, sorry, that job's taken. So there was some limited reforms in that respect. And so internment was a later demand because internment only came in later whenever a lot of the other issues had already been slightly resolved. So things were getting better and better. And it definitely was the pressure of the people on the streets that made the difference. So we have a lot to thank America for. but. Both movements have their tragedies and their and their their bad issues too, but both of them are a massive people power movement, and there's a lot to be said for people power. There's a lot to be said for people power, and it's interesting to think at a at a time when ideas spread so rapidly through the internet, it was the television and the the spread of that information across the Atlantic that leads to these civil rights protests, this civil rights movement, and some real progress that was happening. But the great irony here that's always struck me is that the crimes, the tragedy that happens on Bloody Sunday ends up being a, a rallying point for membership and support to the IRA. Do, do you agree with that? Did it garner this increased support and membership? 100%. Yes, I totally agree with that. So I think it really backfired on the British Army, who we hoping to sort of quell the dissenters, but instead they, they amassed an army here because there was a lot of young men in Derry who had no, no recourse, or no way to sort of get their own back after their people were shot in the streets. And a lot of the, the seven, six or seven of these boys were 17 years old, you know, so we're talking, we're talking children, really. I think I read somewhere if you, when I was doing research for a previous book that there were around 40 or 50 active IRA members in Derry in the months before Bloody Sunday. And there was three or four thousand in the months after. So there was people queuing around the block to join the IRA because it was their only form of doing something to try and get their own back almost on the army and on what they had done on their people. And I could totally see how that happened. Thank God none of my own family did. But I know a lot of families who did go down that route. And you can understand it, but still that led to 30 more years of war and it could have all been avoided. So it was a real turning point in the watershed and the troubles that instead of it being ironed out and smoothed out. Everything escalated. As you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was awful. And the IRA were responsible for a lot of atrocities. Bloody Sunday was the catalyst for all of it, really. And most historians agree with that. You know, it was a real turning point. So as it is such a, a seminal, catalytic moment in the Troubles, let's go a little bit deeper into the details. Because one question that's always bugged me is why the 1st Battalion Parachute Regiment 
were sent in to police that day. Now, anyone who knows anything about the Paras is that you're sent over enemy lines. You're trained as those first spearhead of British military action. You're in there, you take the shots, you take the compound, you achieve a military victory. This is the height of the best of the best, the creme de la creme of a frontline fighting force, not police officers, not peacekeepers. So do we know why, why on earth they are there that day? Because they wanted to go in heavy and they wanted to sort out dairy. They, the British government and the British establishment, really, as well as the people here in Northern Ireland, the, the government that was here as well, Stormont, they wanted to go in heavy against the revolutionaries in Derry that needed sorted out to bring about a discipline. That was their mistake, really, was because there wasn't really that much danger in Derry at the time, but it created so much more. But going heavy couldn't possibly have meant a politically sanctioned opening of, of fire. So how did events transpire that it got to that point? Do we know the breakdown in command and control? We do, but it's important to point out that six months before Bloody Sunday, the paras were sent into a place in West Belfast called Bally Murphy, and some of the same paras that were present six months later in Derry. Over the course of three days at the introduction of internment, they shot dead 11 people, including shooting a priest and a mum in the face. And they left the mum to die in the field and they didn't go near her for hours and she was still alive. They found out last year at the inquest. So the Bally Murphy massacre is not very well known, but it's the same paras six months earlier in Belfast. Two para were involved in Bally Murphy in the first two days and one para on the third day. That is the context of the people here knew how lethal they could be because they had seen what they had done on Bally Murphy six months earlier. And then a week before Bloody Sunday, there was a march on a local beach here, a few miles outside Derry in McGilligan. And it was across the beach towards an internment camp that was there. And they chose a beach because there was no stones, no pebbles, you know, nothing that could cause a riot. It was a real peaceful protest. And the paratroopers were drafted into that and blocked off the beach with barricades and they came round the barbed wire barricades and started battering the marchers and there was a lot of head injuries that day and so that's McGilligan that was called. There's, there's a lot of documentation about that too and that was the Saturday before Bloody Sunday. So I think people had their backs up thinking oh my god they're sending in the paras again. So the paras were really meant to sort out the people of Northern Ireland and make them obey orders really and make them you know stop wanting more. It's strange isn't it? It's terrible. It is strange and terrible, Julianne. And, and have those incidents, have they been investigated separately or they were part of the Bloody Sunday inquiries? They were not part of the inquiries because the remit of the inquiry was very, very narrow and it was just the events of the day. And they didn't really go into the context of it, which they should have done, you know, to prove that there was a culture of violence here. And I feel very strongly about that. Nobody seems to care that there was a real culture of violence that was condoned and almost approved here. The Bally Murphy families had to wait 50 years for their inquest, but 49 years, and it was only last year and the year before that they had their inquest. And that's how Breed Foyle, a woman I know, found out that her mum was still alive lying in that field after being shot in the face. Imagine finding that out 50 years later. Bally Murphy has had a big inquest and it was the same thing. Everybody was innocent and everybody was shot while running away or helping other people. So it was real similarities to what happened on Bloody Sunday. And again, nobody really knows about that one. So the Bally Murphy families have done a lot of work to try and highlight it and to get some resolution in, over the years. And thank God they've got some now, but they'll never have an inquiry like the Bloody Sunday inquiry. And they'll never, uh, I think nobody will ever have an inquiry as complex as the Bloody Sunday inquiry because it spiralled so much. But McGilligan was just documented in the newspapers and stuff. You know, the McGilligan Beach incident. 
I've done loads of interviews with people over the years who were there and some of the stories of getting beaten. And one guy found a rubber bullet with that was and a rubber bullet was like five, six inches big, massive, massive thing. And they were sliced at the top. And sometimes the, the army put razor blades or glass or something on the top of them just to give them that much more lethality. And they were found by some of the marchers at the McGilligan Beach incident. So that tied in with other people I'd heard of who also found those. So that is a true fact that, that they doctored rubber bullets to make them more hard-hitting. Small stories like that, you would think, whoa, this is a civilian population here. Very few of the people that were on civil rights marches were there in an IRA capacity or in a paramilitary capacity. It was ordinary people that demanded change for their communities. So the decision to send in the army and particularly the highly trained parachute regiment was a mistake all along. And one I think they probably regretted. And where would we say that this failure truly lies then? Of course, there are the false accounts knowingly put forward by the soldiers that mean that the inquiries roll on for decades and decades. There's the commanding officers, which are said to have really G'd up the troops and sent them in there, very much ready for a kind of battle situation. There is the the IRA and and attacks beforehand and around. And of course, you could even take it up to Ted Heath, the prime minister at the time. For you, where does all of this lie? Where does the responsibility lie? It lies with Ted Heath and and the rest of the government at the time. It really does. The night before the first inquiry on the Bloody Sunday, the Widgery Tribunal, the night before Widgery was announced, um, he had a meeting with Edward Heath. And Edward Heath, the Prime Minister at the time, told Widgery to remember that we were in Ireland fighting not only a military war, but a propaganda war. So the inquiry was already slanted to be in favour of the British Army from the very start before it was even announced. And that was all documented. And we got the documentation of that during the course of the campaign. Some of the evidence that was uncovered was crazy, you know, but that was a real powerful one. Was the, it's called the Heath Widgery Memo. And you can read it online, you know. But it's fascinating reading that also another guy in that meeting said they would need to brief counsel for the army and that the standard protocols of the Inquiries Act might not be necessary. So they went on there knowing that they were going to maybe cover it up. And how quickly was that Widgery Inquiry released from start to finish? I think it started in February or March of that year and it lasted for six weeks. And it was very, very short. And the entire inquiry report was 36 pages long. And it basically said the army done a good job. They might have fired a wee bit recklessly, but generally they're good eggs. And the people of Derry broke the rules because marching was illegal at the time. It was a real um, heartbreak for the families of Derry who really thought that inquiry would say, sorry, we've just messed up here. Sorry, we killed your loved ones. But it was the total opposite. It was a whitewash. The motivation for that, you think, is politics. This is Ted Heath trying to save his administration, save face and make sure that there isn't any reason for legitimating increased violence in Northern Ireland. Mm, definitely. I wouldn't say it was all Heath, but yes, definitely the top top brass in the military and the top brass in the government were determined to sort out the, the Northern Ireland problem, by which I mean the Catholics, probably. And one of the key parts of the, the Widgery Report, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like you say, it says that the British military were bordering on reckless but it also accepted the claims that they shot at gunmen and bomb throwers. So there was this idea that there was an IRA gun battle and those that had been shot at were guilty of being paramilitary, of being terrorists. Is this something that cast a shadow over your family? 
Definitely. So they were regarded as legitimate targets. The world was told that they were legitimate targets since there was IRA. The army fired first, but uh, there was two shots fired by the IRA shortly after that in retaliation. But it was after the army had fired first and shot and wounded two people in a piece of wasteland. One of them was a 15-year-old boy and the other one was a 59-year-old man who later died in June. So that was the first shots of the day. And it was only after that that the IRA fired in retaliation. And some members of the community saw them firing and went and crazy and went and got the guns off them, chased them off the streets and said, you're going to make everything worse. And so that was the extent, really, of the IRA movement on the day, because everybody knew on the day of Bloody Sunday that the IRA had promised to stay away from the march. And everybody still agrees with that. And Lord Savile actually agreed with that as well, that the IRA did stay away from the march. And they were all up in another part of the dairy called the Cragen. Because they thought if everyone was in the bog side, the army's going to raid Craigan. So the IRA stayed up there, totally out of the way, knowing that if they went down under the bog side, they'd make things worse. And I dare say by that night, the IRA probably wanted to retaliate a lot more, but they chose not to. And that's covered in my book as well from Martin McGuinness himself, who was the OC of the IRA at the time. And he later became Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland and quite a peacemaker of a man. But as he was so candid about Bloody Sunday and his role on Bloody Sunday, he had to come clean before the inquiry to say, yes, I was the leader of the IRA at the time. He stated categorically that the IRA were, had agreed to stay away. And that's a widely accepted fact that they did. So the two guys who fired were literally guys on the ground who had guns hidden somewhere and thought they might retaliate. It wasn't anything sanctioned or, or organised or planned. Have you had an existential crisis while taking out recycling? Do you look at your shopping and wonder if you should be growing it yourself? And why is everyone banging on about saving the bees? If so, then don't worry because you are not alone. I've been there too. I'm Jimmy Doherty and on my new podcast on Jimmy's Farm, I sit down with well-known faces and some of the smartest green minds to learn how they try and sometimes fail to be kinder to the planet and live closer to nature. Listen and subscribe to On Jimmy's Farm Now, wherever you get your podcasts, a new podcast from History Hit. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Lord Savile concludes that the soldiers of the support company who went into the bog side did so as a result of an order which should not have been given by their commander. He finds that on balance, the first shot in the vicinity of the march was fired by the British Army. He finds that none of the casualties shot by the soldiers of support company was armed with a firearm. He finds that there was some firing by Republican paramilitaries, but none of this firing provided any justification for the shooting of civilian casualties and he finds that in no case was any warning given by soldiers before opening fire. Now, you mentioned the Savile Inquiry, which is one of the most complex inquiries in history. What is it that led to that inquiry being put in place? Um, a campaign by the families who never gave up. And that's sort of what got me into this line of work was my aunt that lives next door when I was growing up. She was the family campaigner along with my uncle watching what they were doing over the years. I thought, wow, I can't believe this is happening. And that's what sort of got me the bug to get interested. I remember telling my friends at school that my auntie took a, a petition of 40,000 signatures to 10 Downing Street and things like that. And, you know, that they were really trying to shake up the establishment and they weren't going to lie down and let it go away. They really persevered. And I think that's the difference with Bloody Sunday and other atrocities, that the Bloody Sunday families never gave up. They just wouldn't take no for an answer until they got the declarations of innocence for all their loved ones and some semblance of the truth. So I think that's what led to the Savile Inquiry and the campaign only lasted for six years. Families didn't campaign in the early years. They were traumatised. Most of Derry was traumatised. And so it wasn't until the 90s, really, that people thought we should do something about Bloody Sunday. And it was based on the Birmingham Six getting out and the Guildford Four getting out and the Maguire Seven, and, uh, you know, these real big miscarriages of justice that were playing on TVs here, and people here in Derry were thinking, we need to do something about Bloody Sunday. And that was real a real catalyst for a lot of people, was we should try. And it worked. And there's a change of politics as well, wasn't there? Because as we start to move towards the Good Friday Agreement, the tenure of Tony Blair, there is a, a prime moment at which this can all start to be aired and take place. Unlike that during, of course, under Heath. Yep, yep, definitely. And although it wasn't an actual, it wasn't one of the factors in the Good Friday Agreement or any of the negotiations, it was always widely acknowledged that there will be no peace until you sort out Bloody Sunday. And again, Martin McGuinness would talk about that in the book, that the meetings in Checkers with Tony Blair and things like that. And it was always on the table, like, yep, you sort out Bloody Sunday, we'll talk about peace. I think the fact that it was always to the forefront of discussions, even informally, really, really mattered. And it wasn't just the politicians, it was the people, it was the community, it was books being written, films being made. You know, that just never really left the public consciousness, deliberately so. And that's a really good thing in hindsight because we achieved more than a lot of other campaigning groups who are still really trying to get that clarity, maybe, from the government and the military. So a lot of people would look to the campaign to figure out how they can change their situation. So a lot of hard work and dedication and people that gave up their whole lives 
And I'm only coming in at the tail end of it here and telling the story of what they've done. But it's, it's so it's so impressive to think that ordinary people change history. Well, that's not entirely true, is it, Julianne? Because you were chair of the Bloody Sunday Trust and you took on the role of the family press officer ahead of the report of the Bloody Sunday Quarry in 2010. So you can play it down all you like, but we know the facts. So tell us a little about that period and the findings. Because I lived in Brussels at the time. I wasn't here for a lot of the inquiry itself, but when I was working with the Bloody Sunday Trust in later years, this was before I was the chair of the Bloody Sunday Trust, I was hired as a press officer. And I am a former reporter myself and a writer generally. So uh, of course I would be their press officer. I was actually on maternity leave from the Derry Journal at the time. And I phoned up the journal and said, can I be press officer for the Bloody Sunday families? And they were all Hell yes. What an opportunity, you know, and there was press from all over the world. It was a real big global event on that day. And it was great to see that, that so many people cared about the outcome. The day itself, there was like 10,000 people in Derry waiting on the report's publication and waiting on word. Was it good or bad? Did we get the truth? Are our people innocent? It was one of the strangest and most surreal and brilliant days of my life, just to see the, the weight lifting off my mum and my aunties and uncles and It was like a weight lifted off all of Derry and it was just to hear those words like, yes, our people were innocent. It was really, really important, you know, in a healing, reconciliation kind of perspective. It was so vital to this time. Because it was an innocent verdict in the fact that all of those that were shot were unarmed. And that was made categorically clear by Savile and the Savile Inquiry. Even my own uncle Jackie, they said he was a nail bomber. And in the days after Bloody Sunday, they actually said that he was on a wanted list. They said four of the victims were on a wanted list, which was just absolute lies. And so one of them was my Uncle Jackie, and he was claimed to be a nail bomber too. There was no nail bombs found that day. There was no acid bombs found that day. Nobody had prepared for a riot because the army never went that far under the bog side because it was a no-go area. So people were really caught unawares. They weren't ready for a war or any kind of confrontation. They said there was one guy that had weapons, Jared Dunney. Only one of the people weren't declared innocent. When his body was found in a car after Bloody Sunday, he had nail bombs crammed in every pocket and he was wearing tight denim jeans and a tight jacket. His sister said you couldn't even get his cigarettes in his pocket. He had to carry them in his hand. And the bullet that killed him went through this pocket that there was a nail bomb in. So clearly the nail bombs were planted. And we have civilian, military and medical witnesses saying that there was no nail bombs on the boy. But then when his body turned up dead, there was nail bombs in every pocket. And that guy was called Jared Donaghy, and he was only 17 as well. He was shot in Abbey Park. A friend of mine, Leo, and another man tried to take him to hospital and they were arrested on the way. They were taken away and Jared Donaghy was left in the car to die. And then whenever someone checked the car later in the barracks, Jared Donaghy had nail bombs in every pocket of these really tight jeans. Now, if he had shot a man with a nail bomb in his pocket, he would have blew up half the barracks or he would have blew up half the street. You know, it would have. So, um, yes, they were definitely planted. And I have so many testimonies from people that searched him for ID, searched him for, you know, who was this boy that was injured and he was dying in their arms. And the only thing he had on him was a holy medal around his neck. And I think that detail really stood out to me as well. And so on the Savile Inquiry, Lord Savile said that Jared Donaghy was innocent, like everyone else. But on the balance of probabilities, he probably had nail bombs in every pocket. And so we feel very strongly in Derry that he was used as a scapegoat because they weren't going to just say that everybody was innocent. And we also knew that they would use Jared Donaghy as a scapegoat. 
because he was the only person that had any links to the IRA because he was in the Vienna Fail or something it's called. And it was just like a, a youth Republican group, which is loosely, loosely affiliated. And because of that link, that's why they planted bombs on him. And so his name has never been fully cleared. And his sister was terminally ill at the time of the Savile Report, reporting back. And she was holding on and holding on. And she didn't get her declaration of innocence for Jared. And she died a few months later, just brokenhearted, brokenhearted. So we always mention Jared Donahue and we always highlight the injustice of his not having his full declaration of innocence because the evidence was overwhelming that they were planted, yet they chose to ignore it. So for you, this is another layer to the lies that stretch through generations now. Definitely, definitely. And I just think if they were going to do it, they should have done it properly. They should have just said, yes, we're sorry, we hold up our hands. But they still had to do something, you know, to upset the people of Derry. So uh, that sort of didn't filter out until the day after the report. And people started realising that Jared wasn't fully exonerated. And it's a pretty hard-hitting thing whenever, you know, there's just that stain on his name that tarnished his reputation. That's kind of unforgivable. When he was a 17-year-old boy. Now, I know you've got your new book out and it reveals a a new history. And that's largely due to the incredible 110 oral history interviews that you've been able to gather over the years and your own personal family connection. So don't give everything away, obviously, but tell us what will readers find most surprising, revelatory about your new history? I think the incidental details and, and the stories of families. I think Bloody Sunday is so often condensed the headlines and hype and look how much the inquiry cost and will they ever shut up about Bloody Sunday? But see, when you think about it and you, you hear all the wee family stories and the anecdotes and the memories, the really visceral memories of the day, you know, um, that's what always fascinated me was the people's stories. Because you can read about it in a history book, but you don't really get the full import of it. But if you sit down and listen to a woman who lost her husband or her brother, or, it's a real compelling human story of loss and tragedy. And that's the kind of stories that always tug at people's heartstrings and make them want to know more. I hope that's what's in the book. And it's just the first time that anyone's really pulled together all these accounts, from, as well as my own interviews. And there's a lot of them as my own interviews over the years. But a lot of them was also witness inquiry statements. And see some of the eyewitness statements that are just there and archived and they're an invaluable primary document. They're brilliant. And some of those, when I was reading them, I thought, This book almost writes itself. It's so powerful. And it has things like the sound of the bullets, the fear, the sound of uh, the army vehicles, you know, the sounds and the smells and steam rising from blood on the street. And it really paints a picture of absolute terror on the street. And I think that is what's been forgotten over the years in the headlines and the controversy is the human angle. You know, that those this is real people we're talking about and real boys and real men. And there was one woman shot as well. And she was a mother of 14 and her husband had just died the year before and she was shot in the leg and they were threatening to shoot her and she was begging for her life. I found her witness statement. She died in the 80s. Peggy Deary, her name is. And so I found her witness statement. And what an absolute honour to include her own words instead of her family members. And and also the same with John Johnson, who's regarded as the 14th victim because he died months later. Again, I've got John Johnson on there and his own words from his 1972 statement. So tying all those together, you really felt a real full picture of what really happened on the day. There was another woman injured too, but she was hit by an army Saracen and crushed against a wall. And she suffered life-changing injuries there on sites. And she's still alive, but she has suffered her whole life because of it. And so she's also regarded as one of the injured, even though she wasn't shot. 
she was hit by a Saracen, which is a really big armoured truck. So again, all these wee tiny incidental stories that come together, is just they, they blew my mind at the time when I started reading about it. And once I sort of realised how fascinating and horrifying it was, I was kind of hooked to find out more and help. It is a harrowing history and, and so much that happens after this in, in the Troubles is it is a, a terrible period in the history of Northern Ireland and, and the United Kingdom and a dark stain on the British politicians and, and the British military. In the light of Brexit most recently, a lot of people have said that there are renewed fractures that have reoccurred in Northern Ireland and increases in violence. Do you think that Bloody Sunday is still something that plays on the mind of a new generation? I don't really think so as much. I think uh, it's more like a family fable passed down, but I don't think it's something that really affects the next generation or, or the ones to come. Hopefully, my family's view was that they wanted to sort it out so the burden wasn't passed to the next generation. And I really feel that they've done that. Because I always told my Auntie Kay that if anything happened to her, don't worry, I'll keep on the campaign. But thank God, I don't have to. Because we got as much as we're going to get. We didn't get the full truth. They just blamed the foot soldiers. They didn't go any higher up the chain when we had documentary evidence that it definitely went up the chain. But nobody was listening. The few bad apples theory won out. But we still got more than many other families or events or campaigners here. We have to be grateful for that. But I would have liked them to have went a little bit further and said, you know, yes, it went all the way to the top. So exoneration, closure, and that verdict of innocence. Julianne, yes. tell us where can we read more about this? What is the title of your new book? My new book is called On Bloody Sunday, A New History of the Day and Its Aftermath by Those Who Were There. It is a truly beautiful book. I urge you to go out there and buy it and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Julianne, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me and thank you everyone for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.